Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are holy. And Father, we adore you. Lord, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. There can be no greater sacrifice, no greater gift, no greater expression of love. But Father, let us glorify you now. Father, give us ears to hear as we open your word, Father. Father, I pray for your words. Father, help us to understand who Jesus Christ is. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, our Savior. Father, we commend this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's introduction of a four-week series, as Ron mentioned it, each of the pastors is taking a week and is answering the question, who is Jesus? We've coordinated this so that no pastor is preaching on the same passage or on the same facet or angle so that you have different understandings of who Jesus Christ is. Now, we could do this for eternity because he is eternal God, amen? Oh, come on, we can do better than that, amen? Amen. But we're going to do this in four weeks. So today I'm going to take you on a tour through the Old Testament books of Haggai, Zechariah, and if we have time, Malachi, where I want to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ, with the answer of, he is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenants of God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenants of God. I want you to think about a well-known nation. It was once a superpower. Other nations eagerly entered into treaties to gain its favor, but not anymore. Other nations just shake their heads and ponder what happened to them. Its citizens had once petitioned for leaders to be appointed from their own people, but like all government, these leaders fell into corruption. They amassed for themselves wealth and power, and along the way, they neglected the poor in favor of self-indulgence. They allowed corrupting influences to cloud their thinking as they thought only of their own pleasure. And they ignored the very foundations of how they became a nation. And now this nation is in decline. It has lost its wealth to other countries. Foreigners own its land. It has many expatriates living abroad. And these have forgotten their history or they just don't care. This was all predictable, and in fact, it was predicted, but the people wouldn't listen, and now they're living with their consequences. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I'm talking about the nation of Israel in the 4th and 5th centuries BC. See, this was all in God's plan. Before the foundations of the earth, God had a plan. The creation of the heavenly bodies and of the earth, the flora and the fauna, and those are fancy words for people and, and uh, plants, or animals and plants, and ultimately God's greatest creation, man, was part of that plan. And man's fall due to sin was also in his plan. But God's plan was not to leave man to his own demise. Rather, from the very start, God's design was for man to live with him forever. So immediately after man's sin was complete, God announced his plan of which he promised, repeated, and reminded his people through his appointed prophets. He reassured Israel time and again only to have them disobey and reject him. But God is not finished with Israel. 
She will in the end enjoy the unmerited favor that God has promised her. God expressed his plan by establishing covenants with his people, the nation of Israel. And these covenants describe the relationship of God with man. To understand prophecy then, it's important to understand the covenants of the Lord. What do you think of when you hear the word covenant? You know, it's not, a, it's not an uncommon word, but it's a word that we use synonyms for quite a bit. We don't use it in everyday language. We like the words contract, agreement, promise, treaty. We think of those words. We use contracts to buy cars, to buy houses, to um, obtain services. Usually these are formal, they're signed, and sometimes they're even notarized. We have agreements between people to do something or to not do something. How many of you heard of agree to disagree? We have gentlemen's agreements. Oftentimes we shake hands on these agreements, but we don't formalize them, we don't write them down. We make promises regularly to each other. How many of you heard the term, I give you my word, my word is my bond. And people are judged by how they keep their promises. Then we have treaties between governments and between countries. We have treaties over trade, treaties over weapons, treaties over peace, treaties over non-aggression. But we're not unfamiliar with the word covenant. Homeowners associations have CC and R's. Those stands for covenants, conditions, and restrictions. You see, these govern how people use and maintain their property. And of course, we always talk about the marriage covenant. In ancient days, covenants were often accompanied by rituals and signs. Often covenants were made solemn by the shedding of blood as animals were sacrificed. Sometimes the animals were eaten by the two parties to the covenant. Sometimes the parties would walk between the pieces of the animals as they were uh, cut in half and then laid out, and they walked between them. Sometimes signs were established to signify the establishment of these covenants, such as erection of memorials or other visible reminders. The Bible is full of covenants. There's lots of covenants. Abraham and Abimelech had a covenant in Genesis 21. Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31. David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel. David and Abner in 2 Samuel. Solomon and one of his subjects, Shimei, in 1 Kings. The high priest Jehoiada and the royal guard in 2 Kings. You see, people obviously understood the importance of making and keeping promises. While not a covenant, God nonetheless made a promise to the first man and woman. We find that in Genesis 2. Listen to as I read Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was a promise God made that if they disobeyed him, man would die. And when Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they separated themselves from a holy God and brought upon themselves and all their offspring a sentence of death. But God, even in the midst of pronouncing his punishment on the two, also revealed his plan for their redemption. In Genesis 3.15, he said that the offspring of the woman would bruise or crush the head of the serpent, foretelling the coming of a savior who would once and for all defeat sin and the death that it brings. And we have several covenants of God. The first of these covenants was the Noahic covenant, 
When God promised he would never again destroy all the inhabitants of the earth by flood. We find that in Genesis 9, starting with verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I made between, you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is a clear example of God's sovereign grace, his unmerited grace to all living things. As the creator and sovereign, the holy God was and continues to be perfectly justified in destroying all creation because of the corruption of sin. Yet despite having cut off life, except for the remnant that was spared in the ark, God promised never again to duplicate that particular judgment. And we see the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. This is a unilateral covenant. God didn't set any conditions on this. He said, I will do this. He didn't say, if man will do this. He said, I will do this. So it's a unilateral covenant. The next covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And we first find that mentioned in Genesis 12. Verse one says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of earth shall be blessed. Or in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. This covenant promised Abraham that he would be a great name and that through him, all nations would be blessed. And in Genesis 15, 5, 17, 2, and 18, 18, God told Abraham he would have numerous offspring. And in both Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God told Abraham his descendants would possess their own land. In Genesis 17, God told Abraham that the land would be an everlasting possession. If the land is an everlasting possession, that makes the Abrahamic covenant an everlasting covenant. It goes on forever. But then we look at Genesis 15, and we start with verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This covenant was solemnized by the shedding of blood and by the passing between the pieces of the animals. But if you'll notice in verse 12, Abraham had fallen into a deep sleep. And then in verse 17, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God is often symbolized by fire, the burning bush. Abraham did not walk between the pieces. See, in Genesis 22, God reiterating his promise tells Abraham, by myself I have sworn. Listen to what the author of Hebrews tells us in, in Hebrews 6. Starting with verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his person or of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, he must keep his covenants. In Genesis 17, 11, the sign of this covenant was circumcision. No conditions were set on Abraham. Indeed, God chose him. And God made the covenant unilateral. It's one of grace, unmerited favor. No condition sent. It's nothing that is earned. The covenant was extended to Abraham's offspring, Isaac and Jacob. And the Abrahamic covenant is foundation to all other covenants. This was the granddaddy of the covenants. Then there's the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus 19 and 20, we find the Mosaic Covenant. We're told in Deuteronomy 5, the covenant was not given to the patriarchs. It wasn't given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather it was given to those who came in the Exodus from Egypt. And it was reiterated to the second generation of the Exodus, those that were in the Sinai Desert. Remember, the first generation was caused to die in the desert because they wouldn't go in and occupy the promised land. So God wiped them out, and the next generation was also given this covenant. And while connected to the Abrahamic covenant through the promises of blessing, of population increase, and the relationship to God, the Mosaic covenant was conditional. It's not unilateral. See, God's blessings to Israel under this covenant were dependent upon Israel's obedience to God's law. Obedience would bring blessing. Disobedience would bring curses. And this covenant was ratified by blood according to Exodus 24.8. And circumcision was also a sign of this covenant. Then there's a little-known covenant, one that's often overlooked. It's called the Palestinian Covenant. And we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Listen to starting with verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, 
the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all the commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Israel was promised their right to the land of Canaan. Israel was promised future restoration. I'm sorry, promised future repentance and return to their Messiah. They're promised restoration to the land, transformation or conversion as a nation, not just some individuals. There would be judgment of their enemies and Israel would receive its full blessing. See, an often overlooked significance is a prophecy found in 31 through 3, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. See, here God clearly tells Israel that they will not obey him, but rather will suffer the curses of disobedience. Even so, God promised to bring them back to their land when they repent. The fifth covenant is the Davidic covenant. Turn to 2 Samuel with me. We'll be in 2 Samuel 7. And starting with verse 8, God is speaking to Nathan the prophet after David has offered and asked to build God a temple. And this is what God says to Nathan, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
This is similar to the Abrahamic covenant. It's unilateral. God didn't set a condition on David for this. He told David what he would do. That he will give a place or a land to Israel. He promises David that he'll have rest from his enemies. And he promises that he will establish a royal dynasty that a descendant of David's will sit on the throne forever. Then we have the sixth and final covenant. Turn to Jeremiah 31. And we find this covenant in 31 verses 31 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gerub and shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. Like the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant is an everlasting covenant of grace. It is made with Israel and Judah. While God has not and will not break the other covenants, Hebrews 8, 6 tells us the new covenant is the superior covenant. And unlike any other covenant, this has special provisions. These include the transformation of human hearts, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the permanent forgiveness of sin, an intimate knowledge of God. And in addition, there's physical blessings for Israel. Israel will be gathered to their land. The land will be productive and the herds and flocks will increase, as will the population. They'll have rest, peace, and security. The cities will be rebuilt. They will express their joy openly. This covenant was sealed by blood. It was sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And while explicit in what God would do for Israel, the people of Israel often failed to understand the implications of what they'd been told. They failed to grasp these amazing promises that God had made to them. And instead, they turned from following him to pursuing other gods. Of all the covenants... Only one required the action on their part. That was the Mosaic Covenant. Yet Israel time and again failed to comply with the conditions of obedience found in the Mosaic Covenant. Instead, they brought upon themselves the curses that God had promised. And ever faithful, God upheld his word. He upheld his promise and he removed them from the land and delivered them into the hands of the Babylonians. 
In Jeremiah 25, we're told it was prophesied that they would be carried into captivity where they would be held for 70 years. And as promised, in Jeremiah 29, at the end of the 70 years, Israel was allowed to return to the land. But Israel's heart toward God had grown cold. They had exchanged his promises of blessing, of land, and prosperity for the comfort found in captivity. And while having returned to Jerusalem, they neglected rebuilding the temple. They continued in their sinful conduct. So God sent prophets to post-exilic Israel to remind her of his promises. So turn with me to Haggai. The prophet Haggai addressed Israel's neglect in rebuilding the temple. Though they returned to the land and they were under the rule of Darius, Darius was disposed towards Israel and to the rebuilding effort. But the people nonetheless became lazy. They became neglectful in their worship of God. So as a result, their prosperity had suffered. God, through Haggai, pointed out that they lived in their own comfortable houses but left his house in ruins. As I was sharing this passage with my wife last night, she made an aside that said, hmm, sounds like we need to clean the worship center a little bit more. You can laugh, that's okay. I can't uh, endorse necessarily that hermeneutic, but the reality is Israel was living in comfortable houses and they didn't care about the temple of the Lord. He pointed out that though they sowed much, they harvested little. They never seemed to have enough to eat, drink, or stay warm or provide for their families or provide for themselves financially. God told them to consider their ways. He said that because they neglected his house, he brought drought and sparse productivity. The people were led by their governor, Zerubbabel, and by Joshua, the high priest. And they responded. They responded in obedience, and they started to rebuild the temple. Haggai 1.13 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. See, even though they had sinned in not worshiping the Lord, he nonetheless did not abandon his people. He maintained his promises of the covenants. The people set out to rebuild the temple, but it became obvious to those who had been alive to see Solomon's temple 70 years before that this new temple would not attain to the glory of the former temple. But God gave a message of grace to Zerubbabel, to Joshua and to the people. And we see that in Haggai 2, verses four and five. He says, yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He tells them to continue the work because he recognizes his covenant with them. He had invoked the Mosaic Covenant to encourage them. They were to be encouraged and to press on because his spirit remained among them. Then the Lord gave them even greater encouragement. In Haggai 2, 6, and 7, God tells them that he would shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and that he will fill this house, his temple, with glory. Now this is a re reference to God's presence in the temple among his people. Now, he'd previously filled the temple of Solomon with his presence. This is in 1 Kings 8. So this alone was great comfort. God had told them that he was with them and that his glory would return to them. But then he said something even more remarkable. In Haggai 2.9, God said, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than that of the former. And in this place, I will give peace. These promises were not fulfilled in Haggai's time. 
According to Hebrews 12, 26, the time when the Lord will shake the nations has yet to take place. The passage in Hebrews suggests a future time when Messiah will return to reign. And preceding that time, there will be an earthquake that shakes the earth. And you find that in Revelation 6. While the temple was rebuilt, while this temple was rebuilt, it was destroyed around A.D. 70. So the latter glory of this house then refers to Messiah's return to Jerusalem as promised in the Palestinian covenant and in the new covenant. At that time, there will be no temple except the Lord himself. And Israel has yet to have peace and rest from its enemies. Just look at the recent news from the Middle East. But since God is faithful to fulfill his promises, this can only mean that the ultimate fulfillment is in the future. This harkens to the Davidic covenant and to the new covenant. When the king of kings, when Christ will reign, a descendant of David, and God told Israel that at that time they would have peace. Haggai pronounces God's blessings upon the people because of their obedience in rebuilding the temple, having credited their misfortunes to prior disobedience. This, of course, recalls the promises of blessings and curses from the Mosaic Covenant. And finally, in Haggai 2, 20 to 23, we read, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He tells Zerubbabel, the governor, that God is about to shake the heavens, recalling this earlier prophecy we just spoke of. This time he will overthrow the nations. Of significance is Haggai's prophecy that the Lord on that day will take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. The signet ring symbolizes the king's authority. How many times have you seen in the movies and the things where they kiss the ring? You've heard that, kiss the ring. Well, it's the king's authority. Well, while it's suggested that the meaning of the passage is that Zerubbabel himself is the one chosen of the Lord, the context clearly talks about on that day when these prophecies come to pass. Now, if you look at Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you see the genealogies of Jesus. You will see Zerubbabel is in the Davidic line in the genealogy of Jesus. See, Haggai's prophecy is not about Zerubbabel, but rather about the coming king, a future fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So in Haggai, we see all the elements of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. All of the covenants are represented in Haggai. Then we turn to Zechariah. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. As with Haggai, Zechariah calls Israel to account for her disobedience to God, exhorting Israel to return to the Lord. He evokes the Mosaic Covenant in, in uh, Zechariah 1.6. He writes that their fathers repented of their sins, saying, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Zechariah then relates a series of eight visions that he was given by the Lord. In the first vision, he sees a man riding a red horse with other horses behind him. He asked the men with him, an angel of the Lord, the meaning of the vision, and was told that the horsemen had been sent to patrol the earth. They reported that all the earth remains at rest. And the angel is heard to inquire of the Lord as to how long he would continue to be angry with Israel. God answered the angel with gracious and comforting words. 
And then we read in Zechariah 1.14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. You see, the Lord was jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. But he's mad at the other nations, even though they're at ease, because they made Israel's woes worse. They exacerbated the problem. They furthered the disaster that was brought by God against Israel's sin. Remember the Palestinian covenant we read in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 37 says that God would bring curses on such enemies of Israel. Then the Lord says that he has returned to Jerusalem, that his house would be built there. He declared that the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. He declared that his cities would again overflow with prosperity. These promises reflect the new covenant. And when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate and the measuring line shall go out further. That reflects back to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 38 and 39. Then in Jeremiah, I'm sorry, in Zechariah 1, 18, um, we see the second vision. Jeremiah, or Zechariah sees four horns, which the angel said symbolize Israel's enemies, the nations that caused her to be scattered throughout the earth. Zechariah also saw craftsmen of whom the angel said were to destroy the same nation. This vision relates to the fulfillment of the Palestinian covenant. In his third vision, found in chapter two, Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line. The angel tells him that this is to measure Jerusalem, to determine its width and length. Here Zechariah sees what comes to pass in Revelation 21, where the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, having the glory of God. If you look at Zechariah 2, 3, and 4, it says, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Zechariah has seen another angel speak to the first. And he hears a second angel declare that Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Villages without walls because of the multitude of people and the multitude of livestock. This is a fulfillment of the new covenant. And in Zechariah 2.11, the Lord says, "The many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. The many nations refers to the Gentile nations, those who join in the covenant promises of God. In Ephesians 2, 11 and 22, Paul writes, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. He's writing to the Ephesians. Okay, these are Gentiles. Yet it is through Christ that those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So it's clear then that the prophecy in Zechariah is a new covenant reality. In his fourth vision, found in Zechariah 3, Zechariah sees before him the high priest Joshua who is standing in filthy clothes before the angel of the Lord and being accused by Satan. But the Lord rebukes Satan and calls for Joshua to be clothed with pure vestments, declaring that Joshua's sin has been taken from him. Where else do we read about Satan accusing the elect? This is in Revelation 12.10. Forgiveness of sins declaring that Joshua's sin has been taken from him. Forgiveness of sins is a provision of the new covenant. The clean clothing given to the one who is forgiven is also shown in Revelation 7:14, in which the robes were made white in the blood of the lamb who is God's Messiah. 
In Revelation 19.8, the bride of Christ is dressed in fine linen, bright and pure. Zechariah then hears the Lord tell Joshua that he and other priests are assigned that God will raise up his servant, the branch. Zechariah 3, 8, and 9 tells us, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The removal of the iniquity of the land in a single day is a hallmark of the new covenant. Now the term servant, branch, and stone, these all refer to Christ. The word servant is used by Isaiah many times to refer to the Messiah. The word branch is likewise a common reference to Christ as coming from the line of David. All these are in Isaiah. Paul referred to Christ as the chief cornerstone of the foundation of the household of God in Ephesians. Peter did the same in 1 Peter. In Zechariah 4, the prophet sees a fifth vision, that of a golden lampstand with a bowl and seven lamps on it. Beside it are two olive trees, one on each side. These two olive trees represent Zerubbabel, who represents the Davidic royal line, and thus a component of the Davidic covenant, and Joshua, who represents the priesthood, who intercedes for man before God. Both the king and the priest are united in the one person of Jesus Christ, the future king, and the offspring of David, and the great high priest, the Davidic covenant. Zechariah 6 and 7 visions are found in Zechariah 5. The first one is that of a flying scroll which contains curses on both sides. The curses fly throughout the land, removing sin. In Zechariah 5, 6, and 11, he sees a vision representing sin, a woman in a basket whom the angel says is wickedness. The woman is carried away to Shinar, which is Babylon, a nation that conquered Judah and therefore will be punished by God. The sin is removed from Israel and a curse placed on her enemy, as promised in the Palestinian covenant. And the eighth and final vision of Zechariah is similar to the first vision found in Zechariah 1. This concluding vision brings hope to Israel that the Lord will bring judgment on her enemies, recalling the Palestinian covenant. And Israel can take comfort that her enemies will no longer oppress her. And then God tells Zechariah to place a crown on Joshua the high priest. He refers to Joshua as the branch, a term most commonly used to identify the coming Messiah within the Davidic line, the royal line of Israel. He says he'll be a priest on the throne. That means there's gonna be harmony between the two. Now it's interesting because in Israel's history, the king is not allowed to be the priest. Can you recall a king who took on the roles of a priest and what happened to him? It was Saul and he lost his kingdom over it. They're not allowed to combine the roles. Yet here God declares that the branch will be both king and high priest. In order for the high priest to be king, he must be of the line of David in accordance with the Davidic covenant. And then in Zechariah 7, 8, the prophet turns from his visions and relates prophecies from the future. In Zechariah 7, he addresses the people who asked that they should continue to weep and fast as they did during their exile. God rebukes them for their self-centeredness and for the religious pretensions and they should have been weeping and fasting over the sins. And through Zechariah, the Lord calls them to render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and none of you who devise evil against another in your heart. In short, they were to love their neighbors as themselves. This is reflected in the Mosaic Covenant. And in Zechariah 8, the Lord again encourages Israel. He tells them he'll return to them, and they will be called a faithful city. He'll give them peace and security, gather them from other countries. 
These are reflected in the new covenant. And the Lord tells Israel that many people and nations will be drawn to her. They will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord of hosts and to entreat the favor of the Lord. In this manner, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is promised in the Abrahamic covenant. We can go on through Zechariah and time prohibits us from going further, but you can see that each of these covenants is represented in Zechariah. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. Zechariah is also about the covenants. But let's look quickly in Malachi as we're running out of time. The book of Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophecies. Said about 100 years after the Jews returned to Babylon, the Jews had not realized the coming of the Messiah nor the fulfillment of the covenant promises. They had sunk back into their depravity and sin and they were occasioning yet another admonition. God's gonna admonish them again. But nonetheless, Malachi also gave them their last prophecy of the Messiah, one which would have to sustain them for the next 400 years. Starting Malachi 1, after declaring God's love for Israel, Malachi launches into a condemnation of the priests who offered defective sacrifices, animals which were not perfect in violation of the standards established by God in Leviticus. The Lord eschews such irreverent treatment in Malachi 2.9, and he pronounces discipline on the priests. Then Malachi makes his first prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. The Lord announces that he is sending his messenger who will clear the way before me. You can see this in Malachi 3.1. This messenger, according to Jesus, was none other than John the Baptist. On the heels of the messenger will come the Lord whom you seek. The Lord will suddenly come into his temple. This can be none other than God's Messiah. The Lord himself, as he is coming into his temple. Then, still in Malachi 3.1, the Lord is described as the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. This is also a direct reference to Messiah, who will usher in the new covenant. And all of these refer to the first advent of Jesus Christ. Then in Malachi 3, 2, the prophet changes views to Messiah's second advent, when Jesus comes again. In Malachi 3, 3 and 5, he brings judgment and cleansing. The Lord reminds Israel that he does not change, which means that they can rely on all his promises, which would include the covenants. In Malachi 3.7, he again exhorts Israel to return to him and he will return to them. Malachi condemns the nation for robbing God by not paying their tithes. He indicts their arrogance as they only put on a facade of being repentant as they considered it vain to serve God. They saw no profit in doing so. But God also remembers those who have been faithful, recording their names in a book of remembrance, and these he will spare. See, such books are references throughout Israel's history in Exodus and Psalms and Daniel. Of course, the most significant of these is found in Revelation, the Lamb's Book of Life. The book of Malachi and the Old Testament prophecy closes with prophecies of the first and second advent of Christ, with admonitions and accompaniment. Malachi 4, 1 through 3 speaks of the second coming of the Messiah, when sinners will be destroyed and the faithful healed, when there will be no joy, See, this is reflective of fulfillment of the new covenant. In Malachi 4.4, the Lord exhorts Israel to adhere to the Mosaic covenant. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And in perhaps what is the most fitting close to the Old Testament, Malachi 5.6 combines elements of all of the covenants. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
As mentioned previously, this refers to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Yet this might also refer to the coming witnesses of the Lord in the last days. He will prepare people for the coming of the Lord when the covenants will be fulfilled. So in Malachi, we see elements of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the new covenant, all the covenants. Now how does this relate to Jesus Christ? Well, if you recall in Luke 27, I'm sorry, Luke 24, verses 27 and 44, Jesus said that the law and the prophets testify about me. The covenants of the Lord were established in Genesis, that's the Abrahamic covenant. In Exodus, that's the Mosaic covenant. In Deuteronomy, the Palestinian covenant, all of which are in the law. The new covenant is found in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which are in the prophets. And we just looked at three prophets and how the covenants are woven throughout there. If the law and the prophets testify about Christ, then so do the covenants. In just Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi alone, we see how the covenants are threaded throughout these prophets. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham that in his offspring shall be all the nations of the earth. Galatians 3.16 tells us that Abraham's offspring is Christ. And in Galatians 3.9, tells us that all who believe in him are justified by faith and are blessed Jesus Christ fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, the Lord promised both blessing and obedience and cursing for disobedience. Israel experienced both, but ultimately their sin led to curses. But Jesus kept the law perfectly on behalf of man so that all might experience the blessings of forgiveness. All might experience the blessings of obedience. Jesus Christ fulfills the Mosaic covenant. In the Palestinian covenant, the Lord promised multiple blessings, including the future repentance of Israel, Messiah's return, the restoration of Israel to the land, Israel's conversion as a nation, the judgment of Israel's enemies, and that Israel will receive its full blessing. On the day of the Lord, when he comes again, all of these will be fulfilled as Christ the Messiah returns to reign. This can be found in Revelation 1, Revelation 6, Revelation 7, Revelation 21, Revelation 19. Jesus fulfills the Palestinian covenant. In the Davidic covenant, the Lord promised that a descendant of David's would sit on the throne forever. Jesus, the coming king, is a descendant of David from his first advent. You can find that in Matthew 1, in Luke 3, Revelation 22. His kingdom will be established in John, in Acts, in Colossians, in Hebrews, in Revelation. Jesus Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant. As to the new covenant, Christ himself declared that he was the fulfillment. Throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus announced that he had not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He had come to fulfill them. The law and prophets contain the covenants. Jesus Christ fulfills the covenants. So throughout the Bible, God reminds Israel of his covenant promises. He exhorts them time and time again to turn or return to him. But Israel repeatedly disobeys. Israel's disobedience, however, does not deter God from honoring all his covenants. Through Christ, he has done just that. The Lord is faithful even when his people are not. He didn't turn from them. He stayed faithful to his word. This is grace. This is not merited. We don't merit God's grace. But this is grace. He extends grace to an undeserving nation. And through that nation, he extends grace to all of us. 
Perhaps today you're unsettled because of events that are in the world. You read about wars, you read about famines, you read about problems throughout. Well, Israel was worried and they were unsettled too, if you recall. But our faithful God is sovereign. He will bring peace. Place your faith in Christ, not on governments. Perhaps today you're worried about the economy. Maybe you have mounting debt, or maybe you're unemployed. Israel was stricken. Their wealth was plundered. Their land was taken. But our faithful God is sovereign. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, not money. Perhaps today you suffered loss. Perhaps you're depressed. Perhaps the future seems hopeless. Israel experienced the same emotions. They felt the same way. But our faithful God is sovereign. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, not in your feelings. Maybe today your faith has grown cold and you no longer serve God as he calls you to serve him. Well, Israel's faith grew cold too. He admonished them. We read that in Haggai. But our faithful God is sovereign. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps today you're not saved. You wander about. You play at religion. You're curious, but you have no commitment. Place your faith in Christ the one who fulfills all the covenants of God. You see, because God is faithful, we are secure in the knowledge that our salvation is assured. He called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. He is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1.9. He will guard us against the evil one. He is faithful, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but will provide a means of escape. He is faithful, 1 Corinthians 10.3. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us. He is faithful. 1 John 1.9. He will sanctify us completely. He is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. Our faithful God has granted us grace through his unbroken covenants. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in, in awe. Lord, promises you made from the beginning of time, the covenants you made with Abraham, with Moses, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, Father, the new covenant, all of these promises you made, you fulfilled. Father, indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ is woven throughout the Old Testament. When he says the law and the prophets, they testify about him, indeed they do, for he fulfills the covenants. Father, all covenants will be fulfilled at the coming of Jesus Christ. We look to him in faith. We look to him in anticipation. We look to him in joy. As John said at the end of Revelation, amen, come quickly, Lord. And so we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 